Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is half an hour of science today on your radio with your hosts, Chris and Stu. Claire is not with us today. She's off in Kerrang, I believe, somewhere like that. Yeah, teaching kids about science. Yeah, yeah, just not... Kerrang sounds like a... Sounds like an accident, but I'm assured it's a real place. No, she's definitely there on purpose. Okay, good, yeah. good. Uh, yes, as I said, my name is Chris, and uh, today I'm talking about one of the, the biggest stories in science at the moment... Um, I don't know if you've heard about it. It's one of those it, – it's a big story in the scientific world, but um, it's kind of how much has penetrated the popular consciousness. I'm not sure. It is the controversy about the designer babies come out of China edited using CRISPR gene editing technology. It's a hugely controversial thing because generally the consensus among the scientific community was not a good idea to do this on humans. Uh, someone has gone and done it. Uh, he's in a bit of trouble about it, but – yeah, it's it's been happening. So we're going to look at that. We're going to talk about what actually happened, what it all means, and why it is so controversial. It's a yeah, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, the, you know, the idea that you can edit genes of living people is, I mean, it's it's huge. If it's applied correctly, it could have you know therapeutic benefits and all sorts of things. But doing it just off your own bat to someone who didn't ask you to uh, seems a bit evil, if you like. Well, that's a that's a big jump, but um, look, look we'll look at that. I don't, yeah, I wasn't going to go there, Stu, but um, no, look, fair enough, yeah, yeah. fair enough. But it, it, you know, it's it, it, the ethics are questionable. Let's mm. put it that way. Speaking of evil, Stu, what's your story called today? <laughs> uh, my 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 story is called Moony Blues. Excellent. Now we'll see. You know, everyone knows what the moon is. Everyone sees the moon all the time, and yet a lot all of people. The time. Well, Come. you know. About half the time, okay. you know, well, depends when you're looking. Um, you, you see it, you see it quite often. Let's right. just say it comes up in the sky pretty much every day, just not at the same time. You can't always even see it when it's up, so you don't necessarily see it every day, um, and you know all sorts of things. But a lot of people sort of still have questions about the moon, and I asked at our trivia recently. Well, back in August, what's the time difference between the moon coming up one day and coming up the next day? Not many people got that answer right because it's really variable. It can be anywhere between 20 minutes and 40 minutes more or less than it came up the day before, depending on where you are and how the moon is in its cycle. So, Great trivia question then, Stu. It is a great a trivia, trivia question. question. doesn't have an answer. That's brilliant. Well, it, it, has, a, it has a range. What was the answer? Uh, it's, it's between 20 and 40 minutes. Okay. It depends on what the date is and all that sort of stuff. So if someone wrote down half an hour, you'd be happy with that? No, I, I said within, within sort of 10 minutes. Um, yeah, so I, I got I, there was a there was a range of answers, but, but half an hour would be within twenty and forty. minutes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If they said about half an hour, I probably would have uh, let okay. them have that. Anyone listening who came to our trivia, we're not taking any uh, further negotiation or questions. No, no correspondence will be entered yeah, into. Yeah. But I, someone asked me a question about the moon the other day. Um, they, you know, we can see the moon, the face of the moon, and it's covered in craters. But if the Earth is here on one side of the moon, why are there things hitting the moon? Uh, on the side that we can see. And I thought, well, it's a reasonable question, but there's 
a number of reasons why mm. uh, it's it's the way it is, and uh, I'm going to have a look at what those reasons are later in the show. Great. Um, all the discussion about Crater Face from, from Stu himself, um, who has a remarkably crater-free face, I must say. Thanks. Brilliant. Sounds great. Um, on with the show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, and we're talking about controversial story in uh, science at the moment, which is the birth of babies whose genes were changed using CRISPR technology. Um, I should say this was like this was announced recently. It's possibly leaked rather than just legitimately announced. Certainly announced before any papers had been published on the topic, though. Yeah, it sort of popped up in the news well before it was announced by any journals or anything like that, which is not really surprising because I'm not even sure what journal would accept the paper, to be honest. I think the researcher claims that he submitted it to a journal, since I'm not sure whether the status of that, how it's going, um, whether it will be accepted or what's going on yeah. with that. But anyway, look, let's have a look at what's actually going on here. And first, I guess the obvious question is, what is CRISPR? It's the thing in the bottom of the fridge where you keep the lettuce. And it does the opposite of crisping it, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of makes it go wilty. Mm. Yeah, but no, obviously that's not true. Uh, CRISPR is a technology. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it is an acronym, C-R-I-S-P-R. It stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Cool name. Mm. I wonder why they called it CRISPR. Because mm. um, I didn't want to repeat that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Now, what it is, yeah, it is a technique for editing genes, editing DNA, and it is borrowed from bacteria that use it to protect themselves from viruses. So this is a naturally occurring method. Yeah, yeah, essentially. It's actually being used by living things all the time. And we just pinched it. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah, and repurposed it for our purposes. So Good on us. So what the bacteria do is, so if they are attacked by a virus, um, <laughs> and they've one day been counted forward, from the previous time they've, like, they've kept uh, a bit of DNA from the virus. And what happens when the virus comes again, they program this protein, it's usually something called Cas9, to hunt down that bit of DNA. And what it does, it hunts down that bit of DNA and the new virus that's just arrived, snips it out, and thereby deactivating the virus. So it's sort of like an um, immune system for bacteria. It is. It's a very like, genetically-based, DNA-based immune system. Mm. It's a very precise, uh, yeah, genetically-based immune system. Yeah, so human scientists have adopted this technique to selectively edit bits of DNA because what you can do is you can program the protein with any bit of sequence of DNA you want and it will hunt it down and cut it out. And when it does that, you can either just remove that sequence of DNA, which is generally a gene that, you, um, that you're targeting. Um, so you can either just remove it and the DNA will stick itself back together, or you can provide a replacement gene that, um, if you organize it just right, will slot in the space. So people describe CRISPR, like the protein behind CRISPR as being like scissors. It's like genetic scissors. But really, yeah, it's that thing of, of that precision hunting down the bit of um, the DNA sequence that you're trying to get rid of. So you can basically cut out a gene, insert a new one, and then the DNA repairs itself and goes about its normal yeah. process. Yeah. In this case, though, uh, they did not insert a new one. They just cut out a particular gene. So the research in question is Jiankui He from the Southern University of Science and Technology in Shenzhen, which is, uh, it's not far from Hong Kong, it's in China. Uh, And he claims to have used this CRISPR technique to remove a gene called CCR5 that makes people susceptible to HIV. 
Uh, he uses on human embryos, and supposedly twin girls named or nicknamed Lulu and Nana have been born. So is this, is this gene that he has been working on, it makes certain people more susceptible to the HIV virus? Is that... Is that what he's doing? He's removing that gene? Yeah, so there's um, CCR5 that codes for certain protein that's on the surface of white blood cells, and it's one of the main ways that the HIV virus gets into the white blood cells and infects them. Okay. So there's a naturally occurring mutation that some people have, a small percentage of population, where they, they lack this gene, and that makes them naturally resistant to HIV. So by artificially removing that gene, it's like a genetic vaccination is one way of thinking of it. Right. Yeah. Does does that the question I guess is does that gene have any other functions which now those people don't have? Well, I suppose this is the reason for using a um it's a natural mutation. Like yep. as in some people do have this mutation. Yep. And you can look at those people and look at their health status and figure out are they do they seem to be suffering from it? And if it seems to be harmless yep. having it then you kind of know that it should be safe to remove. But look, now there are a lot of concerns. That, that, is, that is a very good concern. They seem to have covered for that. There are many other concerns. And I'm kind of going to go backwards from the kind of the least concerning, but from the detail, which is least concerning, up to the big picture, is past where the biggest concern is. Yeah. Um, but going backwards, yeah. So um, this CCR5 gene, if you take it out, it, like I said, makes you uh, less susceptible to HIV. It doesn't guarantee immunity. Um, makes you much less susceptible, but, you know... It makes it harder for the the virus to get in, but doesn't guarantee that it can't get in. Right. Um, and you know there are plenty of other ways of um, protecting against HIV infection, many of which are cheaper and simpler than genetic editing. Yeah. Also, in this case, uh, this was done to uh, protect these babies from HIV. Now, the father is HIV positive, but the mother is HIV negative. So. Particularly, I guess the way they were conceived with with artificial insemination in this in this um, situation, the risk of transmission from the father to the babies was very very small. Mm-hmm. So you could kind of say, well, was this necessary to protect these particular babies? It's more like a proof of principle. Yeah, um, it's not actually necessary protecting these particular babies because this, this is a very controversial technique overall. You know, getting approaching the big picture now. You know, and one argument for using though this genetic editing technique is to say to cure a, a genetic disease, an inherited disease. Yeah. In this case, though, you're not curing a disease. You're trying to prevent a disease that the children don't have and have a very small chance of getting. Yeah. So you kind of is it justifiable from that sense? And that's a. A lot of people are questioning that um, you know, in this individual case whether that's worth it. Because there are risks as well. And this is where we get to get start, you know, working up the, the ladder here. There are some known problems uh, with CRISPR. Or we'll just, you know, this kind of genetic editing. One is uh, what's called mosaicism. Mosaic, mosaicism? Mosaicism. I'd say mosaicism, but, you know, I'm old school. Yeah, this is like where someone is a genetic mosaic, which means that they're their cells don't all have exactly the same genome. So what could happen is that you're applying this technique to the embryos, but maybe not all the cells have the mutation, uh, pick out the mutation, and so the, they're not completely 100% protected. You know, like some of the cells still have the gene, other ones have had it removed. Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess the question is how early in the embryo's development does it yeah. get applied? Because if you, the longer you leave it, the more cells there are. Yeah. So, yeah, that would, that would lead to some interesting... Um, Different genetic differences within the the embryo, even early in development. Yeah, yeah. There's also the fact that I mean, this is although it is a very precise technique, it's not nothing is perfect, and there is a chance of there being off-target effects. It might snip out the wrong bit of DNA and do something unpredictable. 
Yeah. So that can happen. Yeah. Um, now, so it's a technology that is reused in, you see it's used in medical research, you know, like cell lines in a dish, sometimes on laboratory mice. It's used in genetic modification for agriculture as well. These are all situations where you're doing it on organisms that if it, if it goes wrong, you know, it, you're basically going to discard the examples where it goes wrong. Yeah. Um, whereas we're talking about human uh, embryos, um, particularly if you don't know how it's going to turn out when the when the child is born, then it's a much riskier scenario. Yeah. Now the scientist he, uh, his name is he. Um, he says that he did analysis of the of the genetics um, before implantation, and that he would make sure that it was all fine before he did it. But that's basically taking his word for it that he's done the right thing and he's being 100% safe. There is a big risk involved in doing this kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, going to the highest level, the issue is basically, this is coming to the whole issue of designer babies. Is it okay to edit genes and change the genetics of of embryos? Well, so, so far, people seem to be saying no, it's not yeah, okay. <laughs> most people would say no, but clearly some people don't say no. Now, most, yeah, it's true. Most people say no. Most of the scientific community is uncomfortable with it. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of a worldwide moratorium in this kind of experimentation. Obviously, did not stop this particular researcher doing it. The institution where he worked said that he wasn't doing it as part of the work for them. They suspended him without pay. Um, so everyone's kind of turned against him. But it's also the kind of, you can see the reaction to this kind of situation of the cat is out of the bag. Yeah. You know, a lot of the concerns are about, okay, is it, you know, is this safe to do it? Um, is that, you know, there's a lot of risks to solve. Now, if you have living babies born from it, then you can kind of point to them and say, look. It, it works fine, everybody. Yeah, except, yeah. I, you can do it safely. Mm. Similarly, the, yeah, this question of, you know, the, the morality of it, you know, clearly some people think it's okay. And when you've got the living babies there, then you kind of can't say, well, look, it, it, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, it is harder to argue against. But then again, if I mean, on, on a slightly separate issue if you look at things like when they cloned dolly the sheep um dolly didn't live as long as a normal sheep and there's those kind of developmental issues which may appear later on in those children's development that we haven't even covered yet so yeah sure the babies are alive and they're healthy now but we don't really know if there's any other effects that might you know, that might affect them later on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is that whole thing of the, the risks involved with the technology. There are some unknown risks mm. that we're not prepared to accept when we're experimenting on humans. It looks like he's tried to choose a, a kind of a safe thing where there's a single gene that does a particularly important job that you can say we're, we're fighting a disease by removing this one gene. Um, a lot of other kind of interventions, like our knowledge of genetics is not good enough that we could just make a baby the way we want it to be, like any kind of recipe. We don't know things well enough to do that. Mm. But it is kind of a first step. And it's kind of an alarming first step. But yeah, it is, it's been done. And so now everyone is just waiting to see what happens next. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. So when we look up at the full moon, when we can see the full moon, mm-hmm. um, we can see the surface facing Earth is covered in craters that give the moon its textured appearance. 
And we always see the same side of the moon when it's full. In fact, we always see the same side of the moon even when it's not full. Can I just say how I hate when people talk about the dark side of the moon? What, the As Pink a, Floyd album? Well, they, no, they, they <laughs> use that to refer to like the far side of the moon. They call it the dark side of the moon. Yeah. And that, that annoys me. Apparently, uh, I, I have read that it is a, an older meaning of dark, meaning unknown. It's like occult, hidden yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So possibly that it's just hidden, the hidden side of the moon. And oldie English hasn't kept up with uh, modern meanings. But yeah, obviously the dark side of the moon does get sunlight yeah. just the same as everything yeah. else um in our solar system yeah um so yes uh the, but the but what what do you call this side no, i just call it the near side of the moon yeah. the near side and the far side so we always see the near side the near side is always facing earth um it's tidally locked to the earth which means that's why it doesn't seem to move a, you know relative to us anyway um so we never really see the other side but we have seen the other side now um we have sent little probes and things. I think yep, it was yep. 19, 1959, I think, the first Russian probe went round the far side. Yep. Terrible photo. Mm. You, it's very, very low res. You could barely see the alien bases that are there. That's right. That's right. Um, and it was dark too. They, <laughs> no, they, they, they just obviously, the you know, camera equipment was not that great in 1959. Um, but, yeah, so that was the first time we anyone had seen it. Um, and they also, being the first people to see it, they got to name all of the things. So there's a lot of uh, Russian names of geographic features on that side of the moon because they got there first. But bearing this in mind, someone recently asked me why. If the moon is tightly locked, why does it have impact craters on the side we see? Because wouldn't things like asteroids and meteors hit the Earth first and not hit the moon? So there's a lot of reasons for this. But I'm no rocket scientist, but I found out um, at least some of the reasons. There's actually a number of, some of them fairly obvious reasons. Um, firstly, the moon wasn't always tidally locked. Um, it did used to spin around very, very early on in its existence. The moon was formed by something hitting the earth and shearing off a fair slab of it, um, which then potentially got uh, merged with other objects that were in the same orbit. So it's actually a big mishmash of bits that were just floating around for well, a while. Well, that's the current hypothesis. Yeah. Um, there's, there's been a number of theories over yeah. the years. So when it did rotate, it was you know equally exposed on all sides and could have been equally hit from any direction, theoretically. So they might be really old craters. Some of them might be really old craters. But the, the problem with that is that the moon is not completely dead in geological terms it actually has lava flows and a molten interior. So even if there are craters there, they may be covered up by... Does it still have a molten interior? I think it's semi-molten. It doesn't seem to erupt anymore, not that anyone's ever seen uh, in in human memory. But we're talking, you know, the moon's been there for about four and a half billion years, so um, probably a long time ago. But um, it's, you know, it, it, it did get rid of some of those craters from when it was... Uh, that's Still why you get spinning those, around the seas that you That's can right. see. Yeah, yeah, and obviously there's no wind or water erosion on the moon, so you don't get that kind of removal of uh, rocky material mm. like we do. Uh, things don't erode away, but they can get lava flows over the top of them, or they used to be able to. Um, but as the moon became tightly locked, it also began moving further away from Earth, and it's now a really long way away relative relative to its size and to the size of the Earth. Um, so 
in other words, there's a lot of empty space between us and the lunar surface. Um, around about 384,500 kilometres on average, mm. because the moon does get closer and further away. Um, but you could basically fit about 30 Earths between the Earth and the moon. There's, mm. That's a lot of space. Or... When the moon is at its furthest from Earth, you could fit all of the planets in the solar system between the Earth and the moon. So there's a lot of room right, in there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really quite far away. Yeah. Um, and if you like, if you were standing on the moon and you're looking at the Earth and the sky, the Earth would not fill the sky as a great big kind of thing blocking out everything. No, it's not. It's not like you know. It's not like the uh, the roof at the at you know at the stadium or something like that. Mm. It's just it's it's a thing that you can see off in the sky, and it's yeah. the most obvious thing you can see. But it doesn't take up a huge amount of space. And similarly, when we're on Earth, the moon doesn't take up very much space. Okay, so essentially you're kind of saying that the, the Earth is not a very big target. Things can get past it, come from other directions. But surely the Earth also has more gravity than the moon. Wouldn't things get sucked towards the Earth more than they would towards the moon? Well, if, uh, if something was coming from directly behind the Earth and it was travelling directly towards the moon, the gravity of the Earth might deflect the course of an object headed I mean, for the moon. It was directly behind the Earth. It would hit well, the Earth. Well, it would know? hit the yeah. Earth, obviously. And obviously some things have done yeah, that. Yeah. But whether they were headed for the moon or not, hard mm, to say. So. Um, but obviously, you know, it, the gravity well that the Earth causes will make objects shift their course. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're talking objects that are travelling very, very rapidly through space as well. So they're, they're, not, they're not sort of drifting slowly through space. They're travelling at hundreds of kilometres an hour or more um, in a lot of cases. Um, so, yeah, of course, some things could be deflected and they may, the Earth may have prevented over time some things from hitting the moon. But the gravity of Earth could also give any passing chunk of rock and ice a big boost and accelerate it towards oh. the moon. Um, oh, so something could have been going around the, moon, the Earth as well, like yeah. not going to hit the moon, and then it gets bent on a course towards the moon. Exactly. And we use these gravity slingshots to shoot rockets and spaceships yeah, yeah. out into the solar system. Wow. So we could have actually, uh, the Earth could have actually been responsible for increasing the speed and changing the direction of objects that have actually made bigger impacts on the moon than they would have otherwise normally. See, I was about to say that you've done a very seasonal story where, like, the the moon is the wicket and the earth is kind of like the batter. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that the ball bends around the batter to get to the wicket, like, Isn't that what spin bowling's all about? But it's not because the batter is there. You know. No, it's true. Um so yeah, so some of the some of the larger craters on the side of the moon that we can see were possibly caused by the Earth increasing the speed of objects that were heading for the moon. Um, but if we look at pictures from NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, um, which is orbiting the moon and taking photos of all different sides of the moon, the far side of the moon is actually more crater covered than the near side. So is it because the near side is more protected by the Earth? Well, probably not, because the geology of the moon, or is that lunology? Geo means Earth, right? So maybe it's... Yeah, maybe. Maybe there's a different word for it. Um, we'll find out. We'll find out if there's a department of lunology. Uh, the crust of the moon is different on the near side than it is on the far side. So the near side of the moon, the crust is thinner on the side that faces the Earth, and the far side is much thicker. So any kind of volcanic activity that might have been happening was more likely to happen on the near side, which 
led to those seas yeah. that we see the, on the surface. The patches that you see when you look at the yeah. moon, they look like either a bunny rabbit or a people or the man in the moon kind of thing. Yeah, or, or saying, there's different names in various different yeah. cultures for those shapes, but yeah. But you don't really have those same things on the other side. If if you look if you look up um, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and have a look at the photos, it looks just much more like a crater field. Yeah. There's not really big patches of, yeah. of no craters. There's craters everywhere. Google um, Far Side is something that's worth a laugh. <laughs> um, so this is because the minerals of the moon are not equally distributed throughout the satellite. Heavier stuff's on one side than the other side, which is partly why it's tidally locked in the way it is. Uh, if they were evenly distributed throughout the whole mass of the moon, then it would possibly still be spinning, potentially. Um, so the thinner crust means there's more volcanic activity on the near side of the moon, or there used to be. Um, there's Obviously, there's not a great deal going on anymore. But yeah, so we get all of those seas appearing on that side. So number of reasons why there are fewer craters on this side of the moon is more volcanic activity, not because the Earth is deflecting uh, objects from the moon. Um, and also just be, the reason that there are craters at all is because the moon's really, really, really far away. And it's pretty impressive that we got there in the first place. All right. And that is all we have time for today on this um, episode of Lost in Science is pretty much all I can call it. Uh, thank you, Stu, for answering the the moon question there. Yeah, well, you know, it's the kind of thing that, you know, people sort of wander around thinking about and they throw them at me because they know I do this show. Yeah. But, if, but if anyone's got any questions that they can't find an answer to, um, send them to us. Yeah, we're really good at Google. Yeah, we, we know Google. Yeah. Now, yeah, that's absolutely true, Stu. Yeah, you can t- ask us your curly science questions. And if we can't if we can't look up an answer, we will do the original research and figure it out. Or, that's the dedication. Or at the very least, we will get in contact with someone who actually knows. Yeah, okay, that's another option. But, you know, it's more fun, <laughs> it's more fun to actually... Doing, a- doing original research in the radio studio is just great. Exactly. Um, yes, yeah, so you can get in touch with us. Uh, our email address is lostinsci. That's L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I at gmail.com. You can also message us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can um, follow us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. And then you can send us like a direct message. I believe that's a thing that people do on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. yeah, DM us on the Twitter. DM us. Um, I also that meant deep and meaningful, but um, I guess it's the same thing in, in many ways. In many ways. Yeah. Or you can just listen to us on the radio, because we are on the radio. Um, it's Lost in Science. It is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, as across Australia, on the Community Radio Network, with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. So, yes, you can listen to us on your local radio station, or you can listen to our podcast. You can download from... Whatever app you want, if you can give us a review, that'd be fantastic. Because what that does is when you give a podcast, I don't know if you know this too, when you give a podcast a good review, it'll be listed up in the search rankings and other people find it and you share the science love. And then we get more listeners and more questions. Yeah, that's right. Because we, we, we love questions we and do. answers. Yes, we do. Um, or you can find us on the 3cr.org.au website or you can just listen to us where you're listening to us now because I'm sure you found us somehow. Uh, when next week... Claire, Stu, and Chris will get lost in science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.